Welcome to the Aftershock podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear. Yeah, sometimes you go home and you do just have a bit of a tear. Whether or not something's gone badly or, or not, it can be tears of, oh, thank God. The Aftershock podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat. And I'm Kim Landy. And this is the Aftershock podcast. Ian Wang is a neurosurgeon based in Melbourne who shares with us what attracted him to neurosurgery, the connection he forms with his patients, and an incredible two-day surgery he recently completed called an on-block resection of C2 chordoma. This is part one of a two-part series where we also speak to Ian's patient, George. What attracted you to medicine? Uh, Medicine is one of those things whereby growing up in my family, uh, a Chinese family, they always said, well, if you've got the marks, you want to do medicine. And in fact, my marks to get into uh, university was such that, you know, I could get into medicine, and but my parents dictated Melbourne, Monash Medicine, then Melbourne Dentistry, Monash Dentistry, and then Law, Com, and then Law, Com. And essentially, I kind of like I was a good boy following my parents. Um, I also, uh, in my year at university, there were 14 of us that got into medicine. So I followed my friends. Uh, so our friendship groups, um, 14 of us went to medicine. You know, you always think when growing up that you want to help people that are at that point growing up as well, you know, the doctor is highly respected. Like he's, he's the guy that is um, the, the person who looks after you, who makes you feel better. So you always feel like that person's doing good. So you want to be like that person at that point. And how did you find medical school? Did it meet your expectations and what you saw of doctors? It wasn't what I thought it would be. You know? So we medical school is, for me, it was three years of lectures and some lab-based work and then three years in the, cl- in the hospitals doing clinical work. The first thing you notice when you get to medical school is that everyone is super smart, right? So when you come out and you're getting your 90, 95% at school, uh, in medical school, you start to get like 65, 70% and you're still very smart. But yeah, you're, when you look at the bell curve of standardization, everyone is smart in that group there. So you kind of get used to being sort of 70, 75, you may do an 80 or 90 in that sense. Uh, it was a lot of book learning. And then you have a big shift in third, fourth year where you go to the clinical school and you meet patients. Uh, it's changed now. I believe nowadays it's very much more uh, combined. So it's not all books and then all patients. Uh, but one of the biggest things that we, you, you, get, you get taught medicine, you get taught surgery, but we got taught very little when I was going through about uh, communication, uh, compassion, empathy, if you can be taught those things. Uh, you get taught very little about uh, running a practice because uh, a lot of medical medicine nowadays is actually a business. If you're a GP, you run a business, a GP clinic. If you're a surgeon, you run a surgical clinic. We've got no business 101. So you come out and coming out of medical school, you get thrust into the world of work, of which the first few years are quite structured in the hospitals. But after that, depending on which path you take, you've got to learn a lot of other things. And that's why there's a whole diversity and, and, you know, people going into public health. Like, you know, Professor Sutton is in public health and certainly has done very well in that that realm. People going to surgery, people going to medical things, uh, medical report writing, you know, that sort of stuff. There's a whole vast range of things that people do in medicine now. So what attracted you to neurosurgery? 
Um, I always wanted to do surgery. Once I got into the clinical world, um, I found the concept of surgery exciting. I like the anatomy. I like the fact that you can find something and try and fix it. Uh, and I was one of those people that you cho- you choose then a stream. After your internship, you choose to be surgical or medical. So I chose the surgical stream, and I was one of those ones who enjoyed every specialty I got into. So yeah. the, in second year, I went to Swan Hill to do general surgery. I came back wanting to be a general surgeon. Then I did orthopedic surgery for four weeks, wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I very much wanted to be a cardiac surgeon because that was my next one. And to the point where, you know, as a young up and coming resident, uh, I invited the cardiothoracic surgeons to my wedding because, you know, that's good for me career wise. <laughs> so they Strategic, came to my wedding. Yeah. <laughs> right. Did you suck up? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but in the end, it was like, then I did neurosurgery. And I actually never thought I wanted to do neurosurgery. But the first time you saw, I saw the brain, I was like, oh, my God, look at the brain. Just like it, the brain pulses. Okay, You all think about the heart pulsing, but the brain actually does pulse because of the pulsation transmission from the heart. And it sits in fluid. So it does pulse up and down. So I thought that was fascinating. Uh, I had a very good registrar who was the um, senior senior doctor looking after me, and then um, my um, one of the bosses took an interest in essence. Okay, so one of the bosses actually came to me and said, "Hey, I hear you might want to do neurosurgery. Would you like to be a unaccredited registrar next year?" And the plan would be to follow a path. So you go unaccredited, then you get onto the neurosurgery program. He gave me two days to think about it. Okay. Uh, but I chose to do the neurosurgical pathway. I, I really did enjoy uh, the brain, the spine, uh, the complexities, uh, and I'm quite happy that I did now. Now, being a neurosurgeon, um, you've probably had some amazing stories, met some amazing people, but you've probably also seen a lot of trauma. How do you handle the trauma cases where there's been brain injuries? Yeah, trauma cases are difficult uh, because the trauma cases, most of the time you're dealing with a patient, but you're also dealing with a family. Yeah. Uh, and the my very first year of training, I was at the Alfred Hospital, which is obviously a tier one trauma hospital. In that situation there, we had so many uh, major traumas where the patient would come in uh, and the chance of living would be like, 50-50 or less, okay? And then the question is living in what state because yes. it's coming with a major head injury, we're probably talking about mostly living in a uh, dependent state, a, a vegetative state. And the difficulty is that most of these people are going to be alcohol-related, speed-related, young males more so. And so we're dealing then with a potential loss of life. So you deal with the patient who is you're trying to save their life. We can't treat the primary damage. We're trying to prevent secondary injury, which is what the role of neurosurgery in that situation is. The families, though, see uh, their child, who may be 20, 25, 30, who has a whole life ahead of them, and they see them in that sense. But I see them, I see them in a sense where, okay, well, this is a life or death, okay, or the potential, they're going to be a doctor, they're a lawyer, they're a super sports star, well, that's out the window. We're now talking about, are you going to live or are you going to die? That's the difficulty in the trauma. You've got to learn to treat the person, but then manage expectations and, and give realistic expectations with the family as well. How do you break that news to families is that something taught in medical school or is that sort of something that you've had to learn along the way uh, um, it, it's taught a lot of this sort of stuff there are some clinical scenarios that are taught 
I think it's taught better nowadays than when I went through because they do a lot of that uh, role play. The problem with role play is it is role playing. Okay? Yeah. So until you get into the world, it's very different. And you can teach certain responses, but people do have to have an innate personality to allow them to communicate these things. And I think that's how a lot of people will choose their specialities. If the doctor cannot communicate, you can't teach them, right? So they may go into pathology, where they sit in a lab looking up the slides, uh, radiology, where they may have to have less patient contact and things like that. There's no easy way to tell families. Uh, I think honesty is very obviously very important. It's also probably important to take it a little bit slower. Like you don't come out straight away and say the chance of this person surviving is 10%. Okay. Mm-hmm. You talk about the facts and say, well, there's a head injury. We need to take out the blood clot. We need to do this. And then we'll talk about things. And families always want to talk about, but what happens if X, Y, Z? Okay, it goes all the way. They'll talk about all these things, but you've got to try and focus them into the now and say, okay, we are on a journey. All these steps, yes, we'll answer them, but the first thing, the most important thing is we need to save their life or we need to get a diagnosis or we need to uh, do take the first step before you go along the um, the rest of the steps. I think you have obviously lovely personality. You're, you can get quite emotional as well. Um, you're quite an emotional person. Um, and we met because you were my mum's um, neurosurgeon and we had at one point have a very difficult conversation. How do you find that the balance between um, obviously really caring about patients but then also making sure you're protecting and future-proofing yourself to not burn out? Yeah, it's quite a difficult balance uh, in that situation. Uh, it's even more difficult because there is a, you know, a, a lot of times we see patients who uh, have come in with that you've got to give bad news to. They are lovely people. Okay? Yeah. They are, the families are lovely. And if they come in, they put their hope and trust in you immediately. Uh, you do form a bond straight away. You know? I, with, with your mother, in, to be honest, uh, we, we we kind of lucked out that we met up in a way, okay, because I don't know if you remember, but like the uh, when you yeah. came in and needed urgent surgery, I actually wasn't the surgeon on call. Yeah, I remember. But when she went into surgery and it was urgent, it was 4.35 a.m. in the morning, something like that, the surgeon got out of bed and had a migraine dizzy spell and actually rang me and said, this is happening. I can't stand up. Can you come and do this case? So yeah. I came in at 5 o'clock in the morning and the first time I met Teresa, she was intubated on the operating table with a back prep. So I'd never even seen her face by the time we operated on her at that yeah. point in time there. Uh, so that's a very different relationship in that, <laughs> in that situation then uh, when we actually um, uh, met in that, in that circumstance. I'm told my wife tells me that I get too involved at times uh, with patients. And there are certainly a few patients whereby you, when you when you spend a lot of time pre-planning surgeries, uh, thinking about the cases, uh, trying to get the best outcome, you do get very invested in it. And I think a lot of people don't see the amount of time that surgeons spend planning yeah. uh, for, you know, for, for, your, for some complex spinal procedures, you spend weeks pre-planning it. Uh, if it's really complex the night before surgery, it's actually very hard to sleep. Uh, you kind of toss and turn a lot. And I know that everyone wants their surgeon to be fresh in the morning and things like that, but it can be pretty hard to sleep the night before a big complex case. And you go through the highs of finishing the operation, you go through the lows of worrying, maybe the patient doesn't wake up, maybe they're a little bit um, weaker for a little short period of time and you're thinking, oh, what's happened? 
because everything's gone te- may have gone technically well, but nerves, spinal cord, and brain they may respond differently even if everything's technically well uh, gone gone smoothly. So it really is a um, a big roller coaster ride when you're actually dealing with patients in this situation. So if you've had a tough day, how do you switch off? It, it can be really hard. Uh, it can be really hard. You, you do have to develop a slight coldness in the end. Okay. Uh, there is a lot of uh, post-surgery uh, inertia uh, that happens, and it's not uncommon that end of a big list. And the, and the surgery is a team. Okay. So there's an anesthetist, there is assistant, there's all the surgical nurses, scrub team, scout teams. In spinal surgery, there's a lot of um, spinal uh, device uh, reps who are also invested in it because we kind of go through the pre-planning and select what uh, implants we're going to use. And there is oftentimes at the end of the day you may sit down for just half an hour and just like do nothing and debrief mm. at this inertia because we all want to go home but it's also like all right we've done it it's gone well let's just have a little bit of a debrief at that point in time um but you're right you do have to have some cold you have to develop some coldness to be able to protect yourself from the emotions of it yeah and i've cried uh you know sometimes you go home and you do just have a bit of a tear okay uh whether or not something's gone badly or, or not it can be tears of oh thank god that's gone yeah well. mm-hmm. okay tears of oh that's really um it's gone well but i'm not sure what's going to happen it could be tears of oh this has happened i'm really anxious about it um there are, and you know most surgeons would would have done that at some point in their life and yeah i guess you just need the supports in the family and friends that you trust uh, to be able to let it out at some point you recently did um, an incredible surgery with George. Uh, what was George diagnosed with? Uh, George was diagnosed with a chordoma. Okay? A chordoma is a, a cancer, but it's not a cancer whereby it actually spreads all over the body. It's a cancer that spreads locally and is very invasive. And the treatment for these sort of conditions, if you can, is to do what's called an on-block resection, whereby you actually take out the tumour and a margin around it of normal tissue so that it doesn't spread. You don't spill tumour cells around the region there. The problem with George is that his tumour was quite high. It's in somewhere called the C2, the cervical two vertebra. And this is where just at the junction between the skull and the spine itself, and it has a lot of connections to there. So to do an on-block resection there is actually technically very, very difficult. And that was a quite a challenging case. If we go back a step, um, how is that kind of cancer diagnosed? What symptoms did he come in with? Well, this is the so George had uh, neck pain, right? So he had neck pain in this in the cervical spine. If it grows locally, it can cause spinal cord trouble. So you can be weakness, numbness, uh, difficulty breathing, those sort of things. But he had neck pain, all right? But and so his GP did an MRI scan with a neck pain, found this lesion, sent him to see another neurosurgeon who had a look at the scans, had a talk to George, and then referred him on to me to have a chat with George. By the time I met George, George had no neck pain. Okay, He had no symptoms. So that's where the difficult conversation comes because this is a guy who has a, now a lesion in the cervical tube, in cervical, uh, second cervical vertebra. It looks like a chordoma. Uh, it could be other things. And he's got no symptoms. Okay. And then you've got to decide then, all right, how far do we push this? What do we do? And that's where the discussion came whereby we talked, I talked to George and George had a, and his wife, Alison, had a lot of questions about what is it? What are the, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to George down the track? 
And at that first conversation, I had, to say, I had to focus back to saying, okay, well, here it is. You've got a lesion on MRI scan. It most likely is this. But this is what I mean by the steps in the journey. The mm-hmm. first step that we had there was to make a diagnosis, okay? and that involves getting a biopsy. And then first in that conversation then was like we, I, I was saying that we need to get a biopsy. But George and Alison were like, okay, but what happens after that? Do we need to do this? Do we need to do that? Or do we need chemotherapy? Do we need radiotherapy? Am I going to walk again? All these sort of things. Uh, but I couldn't answer any of them until we had a diagnosis. Uh, and that's where we try, I try to focus on the journey and the process of saying, okay, let's get a diagnosis. I know you want to ask if it can. So could it be something different? Uh, because it could be, you know, even though it looks like a good IMA, it could be something that's completely benign that doesn't need any treatment. So sometimes you've got to try and focus the conversation on what you know and what the next steps are rather than trying to keep answering questions that are not answerable. How do you then determine the treatment and, in this case, the particular surgery George was going to have? So it turned out the diagnosis was a chordoma. If it was in the middle cervical spine, if it was in the lumbar spine, we do an on-block resection. It's actually a very easy conversation to say we're going to take out the whole thing because it's quite safe to do and it's quite uh, relatively safe to do and has been done before. A C2 chordoma was referred on to me because not not everyone does um, will do an on-block resection and at the cervical too. So the options we had here was to try to go for cure with George and remove it completely or to go in there and just debulk it. Debulk means just remove everything as safely as we can and prolong life. Because if it grows in this region, it will then go and push on the spinal cord and it will gradually become paralyzed. And at the cervical two level, if you get spinal cord issues, you can't breathe because your diaphragm doesn't work from that point onwards as well. Uh, And that's what the focus of our discussion was. Okay, do we go and give you uh, the best quality of life now for a shorter period of time, which means doing a debulking or a lesser procedure? Or do we think about giving you a full life? and remove the entire lesion on block. But that means doing a complex operation, which is multifactorial, multi-stage, one that I hadn't done before, okay? One that if you talk around town, I don't think anyone had done before in Victoria. Um, so that was a hard conversation. And that's where we actually talked about that quite a few times with George. Uh, and that's what I mean about the investment in someone's care. Now, we had a lot of chats. And even before I spoke to George, I'd spoken to three or four different neurosurgeons I've spoken to oncologists, radiation oncologists. We'd had multidisciplinary discussions with that. And when George made the decision uh, with his family, well, with Alison, his wife, about uh, he wanted to try and get cure, and then we actually linked in. Well, I linked in with uh, a group in Canada who has actually done these before and they've been on a high volume of these operations and I talked through with um, the neurosurgeon over there about what they do. And we brought that back to Victoria and we did it here. How did you explain the risks to George? It's, it's interesting discussing risks for an operation you've not done before. Yeah. <laughs> did um, you make that really clear to George that you hadn't done this before? Yes. And I spoke to George about this. I said to George and Alison, and you have to be honest about it. I'd gone through the steps and I'd, I'd explained the process that we'd got to. We meaning the team of like anaesthetists, surgeons, there's multiple surgeons I involved. I involved an ENT surgeon. I involved a plastic surgeon. 
I'd involve the radiation oncologist. Uh, that I explain, you explain the process step by step of how you get there, okay, giving me as much information as he wants. George wanted quite a lot of information, so I gave him quite a lot of information about that. Uh, we had multiple meetings, and then I said to him, well, the general risks we talk about, we can always talk about the general risks. Um, however, the specific risks of spinal cord injury, paralysis, death, the big stuff, okay, I had to say to him, I don't have any figures for it, okay? But I could say to him that the group in Canada had done, uh, I think it was about 15 of these C2 on-block resections in 10 years, and their rates of paralysis were zero, their rates of uh, death were zero, uh, their rates of et cetera was 1%, 2%, and I could give him those figures, but I had to say to him, I don't have any, uh, I don't have uh specific risk numbers for you okay and i said to him we're going in here i would assume there will be a risk of paralysis a risk of coma a risk of a stroke because as part of the operation i took we actually occluded one of the vertebral arteries which is one of the feeding vessels to the brain the risk of death you know? and i also in this situation said to him there's also going to be risks or complications that may come about that neither you nor i have thought about yeah and uh, but you, um, but I was completely honest with him, and he knew, and and Alison knew uh, beforehand. How did you feel going into that operation? Were you pretty nervous going? Yeah, in? I was pretty. I was nervous. So the operation plan ended up it was a planned a two day operation, where we did a first stage on Monday, which was gonna take us uh, twelve hours, and that's to disconnect everything from the back of the spine. And then a second stage, the a day later, two days later, where we'd come from the front of the spine and remove everything at that point in time. This is the roller coaster. On the Sunday night, I, you know, George is probably going to hear this, but I didn't really get a good night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Um, and we had a printout on the board in theatre because there's so many steps in this operation, and over like 20 steps. And I had the team in the room. We had the we chose we you know I, I self selected the anaesthetist we worked with the assistant. I asked the hospital for specific scrub nurses, who are highly skilled and we work well with. Um, the spinal reps were in the room that I work with that I trusted. We discussed it beforehand, and uh, we ticked off every step as we went along through there. Okay, the um, you know step one was you know position the patient, open the skin. Step two was expose all the relevant anatomy. Step three, you know, find the um, bony landmark that we need to make a cut and a disconnection that. Uh, step four, et cetera, and went on and on. And we just ticked them off as we went along in that sense. So throughout that day, I was like, there was intense pressure, but you're doing things. So when you're actually operating, when I'm operating and every step is going, it's actually relatively calm So in terms of how I feel. Uh, we did stop for like we did stop for half an hour. Uh, I stopped to go and have something to eat about two o'clock, three o'clock at that point in time. Then came back to try and finish. And uh, this is the interesting thing actually. The um, Canada had given a detailed thing about how how they would do all these things. And clearly, by the time you get to whenever you write a list, the last part of the list often gets a little bit uh, less detail. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done that before. And so one of the things I had to do, at, we have to do at the back is to um, disconnect, the, make a cut along the dens, which is the upper part of the cervical spine, okay? And we've done everything else to that point. And, I, and it just said, disconnect the dens. And I'm looking in there going, how do I do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Because the actual drill that we have um, 
uh, is such that the handpiece obscures the view when I'm trying to look around there. And uh, this is where we had drain lab technician there who had some navigated instruments that we do robotically and he found an instrument that we are able to go around and there's this nice video of me sort of tapping this big instrument in front of the spinal cord from behind to actually disconnect the actual bone and at that point in time the assistant was like well, his, he was like stressed everyone was a bit stressed at that point including myself that's where the anxiety goes up but once you made that cut it's like that's pretty good. Again, <laughs> you, feel, yeah. you feel good again. Yeah. And so I got home that night. It was like 14 hours in the end for that. And I was on a, on a high. I was pretty happy. I was bouncing around a little bit. Uh, the next morning we had a, like, we kept George asleep through this period. The next morning he had a CT scan. So I could see, make sure we made all the cuts and all the cuts were exactly where we wanted. Okay. So I was again, bouncing all over the place. And then on a, then we had to go on Wednesday again the next day, and that's where Tuesday night again you get all that oh, the, the stress and the the uh, anxiety again. Uh, but the same team came in, we did we did it from the front, uh, and slowly got the whole thing out, which was um, very pleasing. What did day two look like? So day one was quite intense because it was me all day as a surgeon operating. I did have one other neurosurgeon came in for a moment, but essentially I was operating all day. All day. day two was uh, to remove the tumour from the front. Uh, and in fact, to get exposure from the front of the throat, we actually meant that we had to elevate the whole throat and the jaw off the front of the spine, which I'd not done before. Uh, and I actually involved an ENT surgeon, Ben Dixon, who did the whole thing for us. And this is where we modified slightly what Canada did. Canada did a big incision that goes from one ear across the front of the chin back across to the other other ear, and then you can lift it up in that way. But we did a partial thing where we did, we did a cut from the left that just went to behind the chin and a smaller cut from the right so we could actually elevate it in that manner there. And uh, it's the ENT surgeon performing that cut, not you? Yes, the ENT surgeon performed that cut and got me down to the spine itself so for the first so for, for the first I had about three hours where I was able to I was there at the start he did it I'd come in and out but he was opening up and getting exposure to the front of the spine there then I after he'd done that I did what I had to do he came back sort of like three hours later to try and help me deliver the tumor which he came out which was good and then we had the at the end of the day we had the plastic surgeons come in to actually reconstruct a bony graft to replace part of the vertebra that was there. Uh, and that's, so I wasn't scrubbed for the entire day. So the second day finished, I think 13 hours, like 13, 14 hours, but I was probably only scrubbed in uh, operating for about seven of, seven of those on the second day. Was this operation performed during COVID restrictions? And if so, how did you go about communicating with George's family? Yeah, so it was uh, performed recently and it was performed during part of the COVID restrictions. Now, there was no restrictions on surgery at that point, but even if there was restrictions on surgery, George's case would be a cancer and would still be allowed to go ahead. You know? the, what was restricted was, however, was visitors. Yeah. Right? So, in fact, for there were no visitors allowed in Victoria at that point in any hospital. Right? And so George came to hospital on Sunday. I saw him on a Sunday. That was the last time he spoke to his wife, Alison, and the last time he saw his wife and kids for about, God, for about three weeks, I think, because they weren't allowed in. Definitely not to ICU. When he was on the ward, they weren't allowed in. And 
they probably took a while before they actually FaceTimed as well because George had a tracheostomy as part of it, which means that uh, we put a breathing tube through the front of the throat, but it also means you can't talk. Okay? So there's no point FaceTiming at that point in time. And also, they, I think their kids are 13 and 16, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think Alison wanted or they didn't want the kids to see George in that state. And that, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, it does affect me because our kids, you know, you, you know, Susie knows my kids are 13 and 16, also essentially the same age kids. And I just think about what our kids would feel like if I was gone in the hospital like that. Mm. I think they didn't, the, uh, George and Alison didn't tell the kids what was happening until like a couple of days beforehand. Because okay? yeah. um, until the journey was set and we knew what was going on, they didn't want to worry at that point in time. In fact, they didn't even tell anyone apart from George's sister when he had the operation until afterwards so the other focus i kept and this is part of the reason why i rang allison his wife every day because like she was dealing with this by herself yeah um but that's what they wanted to do you have to prepare the patient for the risks but how are you preparing yourself as you're getting to know allison and their family and thinking of your kids how are you prepared for the operation yeah well, you have to, as I said, you've got to try and be a little bit cold and a bit uh, standoffish at some yeah. point. Um, the relationship I developed with the family probably more so was when after the surgery. Okay, So we definitely had chats beforehand. I knew uh, Alison, I'd met her, and I'd said to her that I would talk to her. I said that I would communicate with her. But until you start communicating every day, that's when you get more of a um, – connection with the patients and the family at that point in time. Uh, and so this is where, you know, sometimes you talk and she, if she, you know, I, she'd tell me what was happening with the kids and I would tear a little bit, okay, at home. Uh, but, you know, you try and say, okay, that's fine, uh, good. Well, you know, let us know this is happening, this is happening. And you got to go back to facts. I have to go back to facts, okay. If you're talking facts, then, you know, then you're a doctor and you can actually then be a bit more uh, protected. If you're talking about, oh, yeah, well, you know, if you talk about the family more so, it becomes a lot more personal, which is nice, but then, you know, you do then get very invested in things. At what point, so the surgery's done, how did you know whether it was a success or not? Uh, when he woke up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the problem about having someone asleep under anaesthetic for about four days, yeah. oh. it takes a while to wake up. Okay? Yeah. And there was a period of time there where I'm like thinking I was, yeah, I went through a dark point after surgery where I thought, Oh my God, he's paralyzed. I paralyzed him. Okay, uh, there's no there's no good reason why I thought that. Okay, no. okay. it took look. It was like eight hours, and he wasn't moving at that point in time. But that's very normal. Okay, there's still a lot of anaesthetic on board, and I know that. Okay, and I, you know, I'm a neurosurgeon. I do these things. I know that. But I said to Vicky, my wife, Oh my God, I paralyzed him. Okay, I, I spoke to both the needs of this who were involved and said, oh, my God, I'm, uh, he's not going to wake up. And they're like, oh, no, he's, we'll be fine. You've done everything you can. You've done it the best way. You've done it like um, all pre-planned. We haven't done anything to impact on the spinal cord. Okay, uh, but and, and leading up to the surgery, whilst I talk about the risk of spinal cord injury and paralysis, I never really thought it was a possibility because I'm pretty confident about getting where I needed to go and you know we're quite we're trained to deal with spinal cord so you don't damage the spinal cord and even though it's doing something we hadn't done I was pretty certain I wouldn't have done it but at that period of time as he's waking up before he wakes up I'm like oh my god he's not waking up or he's not breathing or he's not doing this and I'm thinking I've damaged something or other and these are things that you internalize talk to your team 
like my team, my my family. But I've never actually said that to George. I don't think I don't think I've ever said that to Alison that I thought I paralysed him. But there was a, there was a time there when he was not waking up, and I'm like, oh yeah, Alison, yeah, look, he's still waking up. You know, he's starting to make potentially breathe a little bit. Uh, you have to be positive on the phone internally. I remember there was one a couple one conversation. I was like, I'm so worried. I'm so worried. And I think it wasn't until the uh, Saturday that he or Sunday that he woke up. So quite a few days after he woke up, he was breathing. He was moving, and the next day you go in there, you know, he's awake. I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> I said, George, he gave me the thumbs up, Aww. and that kind of like uh, made my heart jump. You know, you sort of you well up a little bit with tears. So I had a chat with him. I actually rang Allison from the bedside and said, George is awake. Yeah, uh, you know, he thumbs up. And then from ICU back to the car park, I think I spoke to the ENT surgeon, both the knee for this, one of the spine rest, Vicky. I spoke to everyone. I just said, oh, my God, he's awake. <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, we knew he would be. But, you know, you kind of you worry about that sort of stuff. I think it's just so beautiful to see you react like that. And I, I know we had that with mum as well. And, and you had it with Brayden and Michelle, who also Michelle spoke on the podcast about um, about her son, Brayden. So, I think it's amazing. Um, obviously, you need to draw the lines of how involved you can get, but um, I think it's beautiful to see you care this much. Yeah, the, the, you do have to draw the line, but you know, I think I was saying that these are the sort of cases that make you proud to be a doctor. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times, like uh, in my work, uh, you do stock standard stuff. Someone has sciatica, you take it out. You, you fix their pain, you do that. But these are the sort of complex cases that make you proud to be a doctor I guess thank you so much to Ian for taking us into the mindset of a neurosurgeon we love hearing how passionate you are about your field and most importantly the strong bond you form with your patients until next time I'm Susie Neat and I'm Kim Landy and this has been the Aftershock podcast